It's great to see everybody. As you can tell, we're not up to full strength yet. Only the hardy souls venture for events now. So we're, you can see that the, uh, we're a little bit down in attendance. But man, we are so glad to be back here in New York with all of you. And uh, I pointed out Howie because you know, we're so thankful to all of you for your support of Cato. And we have some really important supporters here. But at our, our head table here, we have two of the longest serving board members in the history of Cato, both Howie Rich and Tucker Anderson. Uh, Howie is still on the board, but uh, Howie and Tucker both been on, served as directors. They each served as directors of Cato for over 30 years, and, and uh, Howie, I think, is pretty close to becoming Cato's the longest serving board member ever. Uh, I'm Peter Gettler, I'm the president and CEO of Cato. I've only been on the board for seven years. So the odds of me serving for over 30 years are, I can assure you, zero. So Tucker and Howie's records are going to be safe with me. However, as the CEO of Cato, I have to deal with Freda more than any of the other directors. So if we actually convert my years of service into Freda years, I've actually been serving longer than Howie and Tucker combined. That's why it's so great to be here, to basically be able to uh, make fun of one another again in person and not only on, on Zoom. Uh, what did you all do during your pandemic? One of the things that uh, I did was I had my first grandchild, a grandson named Lucas. I actually had nothing to do with it. It was my, my daughter and her husband. But I've said for the last few years since I joined Cato, I've been a, a donor to Cato, a supporter for 21 years, and a director for seven years, and the CEO for six years. And I've always said the reason that we have made Cato a philanthropic priority of our family, and the reason my wife and I moved to Washington, D.C. to contribute our time and effort at the Institute is we really care deeply about what kind of world our grandchildren and great-grandchildren are going to be living in. And until now, it was only theoretical for me. But man, when Lucas showed up, it all became real. And it, he showed up against the backdrop of our insane monetary policy becoming even more insane, fiscal profligacy being taken to new and higher levels, the government continuing to talk about new ways to keep tabs on us and spy on us and other ways to surveil us that will continue to threaten our civil liberties. Uh, the Fed is going to insist on letting Lucas know how much interest he's going to be able to earn on his savings. And so these are all the important reasons why we, why we fight to preserve the founding principles of America and to ensure that future generations have the same luxury we had to live in a relatively free country and to live our, each of us live our version of the American dream. And the part all of you play in that is so important to, uh, to us at Cato. We couldn't, our work wouldn't be possible without your generosity, uh, your support, and uh, your support, not just uh, financial support, but, uh, but moral support. Uh, because the stuff that we're up against is sometimes, sometimes dispiriting. 
One of our speakers today is going to tell us that we shouldn't be as dispirited as we allow ourselves to get, and that's Joan Norberg, who we're really proud to have as a uh, senior fellow at Cato. Joan just wrote a book in, uh, in Sweden called The Capitalism Manifesto, and uh, the first chapter is entitled Why the Last 20 Years Have Been the Best 20 Years Ever. So it's really important that we focus on all the things that are going wrong and all the things that we have to push back against in order to make sure that future generations have the same opportunities that we've enjoyed. Uh, but it's also important to recognize that liberty has created an unbelievable world that we're all privileged to, uh, to live in. And um, we have to make sure that we uh, widen the aperture enough to keep perspective that uh, this is the best time ever to be alive as a human being. And the reason we're fighting is so that our children, our grandchildren, Lucas and his friends, get to live in a world that's even better than the one that, uh, that we've been privileged to, uh, to spend our time in. And uh, that's only going to happen if the founding principles of our country and uh, uh, liberty is preserved for, uh, for the future. And uh, we really appreciate the role that all of you, all of you play in that. So I'm going to keep quiet now and turn the program over to uh, my colleague Sally James, uh, Director of Development at the Cato Institute, Dr. James. And she's going to be joined in conversation with Dr. Calabria, Mark Calabria, who uh, is now a senior advisor at Cato, working with our scholars in the, our economic studies department to, uh, to help them become even more effective in their uh, engagement with policymakers and m ensuring that they are pr prioritizing their work and uh, making their research and analysis as relevant as possible so that it can have, the, that, so that the resources that you entrust to us generate the maximum impact for our work. Um, I'll let, allow Sally to give the formal introduction to Mark, but um, we're all delighted again to be back here and delighted to have Mark back at, at Cato. Sally? Dr. James and Dr. Calabria, neither one of us want to see your rashes, by the way. Okay. Um, yes, delighted to be here um, and very pleased to welcome back to Cato old, old friend Mark Calabria. Um, Mark has joined uh, Cato as director, sorry, Mark initially joined Cato as director of financial regulation, um, co-founding our Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives and helped to establish the center um, and the institute as a leading voice for financial and monetary reform. Uh, before that, he was a senior aide to the Senate Banking Committee, where he led drafting of uh, major legislation following the financial crisis and Hurricane Katrina. Uh, his expertise and reputation was such that uh, when the uh, Trump administration came in, he was drafted to join Vice President Pence's office as chief economist, and from there, he went on to lead the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which regulates uh, and supervises Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the federal home loan banks. He joined the agency in 2019, and therefore led the agency's response to COVID, which we'll get to in a moment. 
Mark's new role, as Peter said, as senior advisor is to provide strategic input on the federal policy-making process with a particular focus on economic policy. Mark, I want to start with a few questions about working in the White House. So many questions. Um, all day. Yes. <laughs> How did the process work for formulating economic policy? And by that, I mean more specifically, I mean how easy was it to get a limited government perspective heard when the, you know, when government has a bias towards government Definitely. and the campaign platform specifically was perhaps more interventionist than what we had typically seen from Republicans or what we would have preferred at Cato, but were you able to get your voice heard? So we basically answer the question before we give the detail. The short answer is yes. You know, and let me kind of walk you through that extremely you know, quickly. Like probably about any White House, most economic issues are driven through the National Economic Council. And obviously the first year we worked with Gary Cohn, the second year we worked with my friend Larry Kudlow. Uh, and there's usually kind of a three-part process. And so when you see uh, titles at the, at the White House, the special assistants are kind of the first tier, the deputy assistants, and then the assistants, which is what Cohn and Kudlow held. Um, and they would coordinate with the agencies. Um, and I found that almost always throughout that process, uh, I was able to put a limited government perspective together, put it on the table. Uh, I was rarely alone, and, and there are a few champions. Uh, you know, when Mick Mulvaney headed OMB, I sat there in over. I sat there in Oval Office meetings with Mick, where he would have a list of agencies and programs he wanted to cut, and tried to make the case to the president. Clearly, we didn't win all the time, or maybe even most of the time. But Mick was really an advocate for that. Um, a real, uh, another ally was OMB, uh, uh, Naomi Rao, who is now Justice Rao, when she headed OIRA, which is that part of OMB that reviews the regs, constant ally pushing back on the agencies from over-regulating. Uh, and of course there were some agencies that actually were quite good, EPA, Interior, there were teams over there that really were focused on, on deregulation. Uh, and so I would say there were always at least two or three of us in the room pushing for a more limited government perspective. I'd probably say at the end of this day that our biggest problem was almost consistently NSC, obviously, is, is things like, you know, because a lot of the pushback for having either a freer trade or a freer, you know, whatever segment of the economy you think about were always the, the sort of national security trade-offs. Um, but again, I would say... I never felt like I didn't have the opportunity to make the argument, even if I wasn't perhaps as persuasive as I could be every time and win. Fair enough. And, and then on the agency side, um, you know, what's it like as a libertarian to lead an agency? Because I, you know, there are a lot of agencies in Washington that yes. libertarians don't think should exist. Uh, did you come away from your experience a little more sympathetic to kind of government action, or did it radicalize you? Did you go native? Or did you go rogue? I, I, you know, perhaps a little bit of perhaps a little bit of both. And let me first say, you know, I've always, you know, thought about maybe as a personality characteristic some of my libertarianism. But this is might might say kind of counterintuitive, or uh, is driven by some degree of, of modesty. Like you know, the, the kind of like I don't know what's right for everybody else, and maybe that's one reason I'm a libertarian. And to kind of channel that going into a leadership position at an agency, you know, if you go in recognizing the knowledge problems that agency faces, the, the incentive problems. So I never went in thinking, oh, this agency is going to do everything terrific. I went in recognizing there are going to be serious limitations to what we, we can do uh, and, what we, and what we can be effective. Uh, and I also, but I did find that sort of projecting that uh, 
modesty to the staff of like, you know, I'm not coming in here with all the answers, I'm coming in here with all the questions perhaps, uh, that I found it much easier. Uh, certainly, you know, you're gonna be limited effectiveness if you're leading an agency that, you're, that, that you don't agree should exist. Uh, I certainly think, uh, being, there's a little bit of background, I wrote the statute, much of the statute creating FHFA. So clearly, I thought there was a role, and where I do think there is a role, and this is pretty consistent with my time at the Monetary Financial Center, if government is coming in and creating guarantees that create moral hazard, then you have to have a regulatory framework that controls that moral hazard. Obviously, the first best solution is you don't come in and create the moral hazard to begin with. But if you do, you have to have a regulatory regime that controls that. Uh, and I think because I came in with that perspective, I had a very clear sense of, why does this agency exist? How do we channel that? How do we make sure it fulfills its function? And how do we not become a whole bunch of other stuff? Part of the problem, certainly, with FHFA and Fannie and Freddie, if they, it's just become a bunch of things that have no real relation. Um, you know, it doesn't say anywhere in the Fannie and Freddie charters that they're supposed to increase some ownership. It doesn't say anywhere that they're supposed to lower mortgage rate. All those things are fantasy. So for me, it made it pretty straightforward to say, we're just going to enforce the law. Uh, and to be able to do it in a very clear and consistent manner, but to also project that, you know, try to make sure we had knowledge and, and, and clarity. And I would lastly say, um, you know, one of the real problems in government in general is this unwillingness to actually state clear rules, you know, and the, the desire from a regulatory or from a government perspective to have optionality and not be bound. Uh, and I was a big believer that I'm going to tell people what I'm going to do, I'm going to be really clear about it, and I'm going to stick to it, and then if we get other information, we'll change. Uh, and it really was a, a sort of rule of law, here's what the rules of the road are. And I thought there was a real obligation to do that. Um, and, if, you know, I put it this way, it wasn't before Dodd-Frank that I ever thought I heard the term uh, regulation by enforcement, where throughout the Obama administration, and we're starting to see this again at CFPB, there was this real perspective of, uh, you know, we'll tell you what the law is when we sue you. Right. That's a horrible way to govern, and it was not it's a way, not a way, not a way that I was going to govern. I was, I was immensely hostile to that. You know, it was a governing approach. But let me say, at the end of the day, um, you know, if, if I had had any sympathy toward the financial regulatory system before I went into government, it's gone now. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, and I say this as a member, former member of the Financial Stability Oversight Council, former financial regulator. Uh, I say this with no exaggeration, you should have pretty much zero confidence in believing that Washington is protecting the stability of our financial system. You're on your own. That might be a good thing, actually. It, 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 um, is, a, it is a good thing if you know it. Right. <laughs> so I want to perhaps nuance on that answer a little bit. I mentioned in my introduction that your tenure at the agency coincided with the COVID-19 pandemic, and one of the government responses to that pandemic was, of course, rental and mortgage forbearance. And it seems to me there must be a number of agencies with some portfolio responsibility for those policies, including CDC, apparently, who knew, um, or at least offering services to homeowners. How did you approach interagency coordination there? Because given that the panic that was ensuing in markets and in society more broadly, there must have been uh, kind of an enormous amount of pressure to respond in real time and to make decisions quickly. Uh, things we don't necessarily associate with government. So our audience, I'm sure, would, as I would love to know what lessons you might have learned about how government actually works on the ground and reacts to events. It's, it's a great question. I had the benefit of coming uh, you know, into the situation with uh, a lot of um, 
strong opinions about the 2008 crisis, you know, and was very committed to like, we're not going to repeat the errors of the 2008 crisis. For instance, uh, the mortgage assistance programs that were set up in 2008 had very high, you know, marginal disincentives to work. They were all based on what your income were. If you made another dollar, you'd lose 30 cents, you know, in your mortgage assistance. So, you know, I looked at this and said, we can't, we can't punish work if we're going to provide assistance at the same time. So instead, we took this and said, we're going to provide a limited time assistance, but it's, but you know, it's not going to have any work disincentives. Uh, that's just one example of this. Uh, fortunately, as an independent agency, I was able to move pretty quickly. Uh, but a coordination with the other government agencies, such as FHA, and, and, and a constant conversation with, for instance, the mortgage servicing industry, the mortgage industry, because the hope was that while I would come out quickly with a clear set of standards, it would be informed with what everybody else was doing, and everybody would move to that. And I think at the end of the day, 95% of the mortgage market, whether it was private label, whether it was portfolio, all ended up adopting what I put out. And again, it was a clear set of rules, uh, borrowers, consistent set of rules. Uh, and I'm very proud to say that we also covered all of that cost within the mortgage market. So um, I'm proud to say it helped keep over 2 million people in their house without a penny of cost to the taxpayer because we all paid for it within the mortgage market. Um, you know, obviously CDC did its thing, which we were not part of. Right. <laughs> uh, all of our rental for assistance programs are completely voluntary for landlords to, to participate in. So the point being is, you can help people without giving up your principles. You can help people without having it to be massively costly for the taxpayer. And you can help people without creating massive work disincentives. I, I think, unfortunately, some of those lessons seem to be lost in Washington. Uh, yes, that's true. And again, another nuance to that answer was, um, you know, from a libertarian point of view, the policy outcomes from the Trump administration were, I think it's fair to say, a mixed bag. Uh, I, it would be useful to hear your perspective on why did we get, for example, tax reform in 2017, mostly along the lines that Cato scholars would agree with, but not get healthcare reform. What, how do we, how did we kind of, how do we get wins it's, it's, in, in a, a way? Gr it's a great question. And while I'm, of course, tempted to point to my 2013 uh, testimony yes, before yes. Ways and Means yes. Committee on the limiting the mortgage introduction state and local taxes, which obviously eventually made it up into the bill, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there were a couple of things, which is, and I think this is partly illustrated by the trouble that Democrats are having with reconciliation today, which is so much of what they've done is not vetted. They're throwing things out. You know, they don't have a consensus on things. And we were able to do tax reform in 2017, A, because of the work that Congressman Camp and Congressman Kevin Brady had done on Ways and Means before we even got there. So there was a consensus package. Parts of it, you know, for those of you who remember, like the border adjustment taxes and things like that, okay. went away. Right. But the core part of it, such as the corporate tax deduction, a consensus had been built for that before we got there. So we were able to take a framework that there had already been a consensus for. If you contrast that with Obamacare, of course, we all remember that Republicans ran for years on repealing Obamacare, but they never really told us what they were going to do otherwise. And that's how it hit in 2017. There was no alternative on the table. It was, we all dislike Obamacare, but we don't have, an, we don't have a vetted consensus uh, answer. And so part of what I hope to, to help us do, and again, this is meant to be partisan because there's certainly areas uh, of Cato where we'll work with Democrats, you know, whether it's criminal justice, immigration, other issues. There are areas where, particularly most of the economics, we're going to focus on Republicans. But when we get a window again on health care, we have to have a plan on the shelf. We have to have vetted it. We have to have put that together. If we wait to the last minute, that window will close quickly. Uh, and that's one lesson. So the tax, there was a consensus. 
There was a plan built. There was something we could run with. Uh, and on healthcare, we didn't have a plan. There, and again, you could perhaps, you know, Dave Camp spent his time on ways and means on uh, tax reform rather than healthcare. So, you know, you yep. could say it cuts both ways. Um, but again, recognizing that having things off the shelf is a general rule that we can run with. Uh, and this was also the case financial reform, a little bit of the community bank relief that we got that in my view certainly did not go far enough, came out of work that Jeb Henselin has done uh, for a couple of years ahead of time. So again, part of this working to build this consensus and, and not just thinking you're going to be able to do everything on the fly when the window opens. Um, yeah, that's good because I was just thinking that your experience and your insights, you know, you're really an example of the type of one of the target audiences that our scholars would have for our ideas. and. Therefore, your, those insights and experiences would be useful to our scholars in knowing the most effective, not just ways, but times and places to kind of have an impact. And so I want to just close with this question before we open it up to the audience, what you see as the major opportunities, either in specific policy areas or in our general approach to government outreach uh, that you think uh, to help our staff and scholars have a, a broader and bigger impact in, in Washington, D.C.? Let me start with the process part of it and, you know, and, and preface with, uh, you know, my new role is to really try to help staff identify, you know, who are the gatekeepers, where are the opportunities, you know, how do you try to build a consensus, and so uh, it's not going to be here's Mark's favorite public policy positions, everybody adopt them. That's, that's not the outcome. The outcome is how do I help them figure out, you know, who do they need to talk to, uh, you know, in a sense, you know, in, in both the good and bad sense of the word, you know, I kind of think of us as lobbyists for liberty in a way. And how would you use the same tools of, you know, it's this committee chair you need to be able to get in front mm -hmm. of, uh, it's this rulemaking process of where you intervene. So a lot of this is just helping the staff identify where can they make an impact, what's the kind of timing, uh, how would you present this, what's a plan that would actually perhaps, you know, have possibility. Uh, and some of this, of course, is the very difficult decision of, we're never going to get perfect. So what is good enough for us right. to want to get around and push? Um, and again, that's, that's really just working on a one-on-one -on -one basis with each of the scholars to try to help them identify those. And again, keeping in mind that as somebody who was on the receiving end of exactly. that, um, so maybe I'll, I'll end with this, um, this kind of an inside story. I often say that my favorite day on the job for Vice President Pence was like the third day, because I was sitting in a meeting across the table from him, he turns to me and says, read a bunch of your stuff, big fan. Of course, my response is you and my mother. It's a <laughs> small but high-quality audience. Yeah. Um, but it really, it's a great compliment to Cato because he was reading some of my Cato stuff. But the part of this that I think is important as well is it took me about a week or so to really click to me. It's like, you know, he was reading my stuff because his staff over the years right. when he was chairing the House Study Committee were putting my op-eds in his, my blog post in his book at night. And so some of this is, who puts the book together? Right. Like any cabinet secretary, you know, any chair or committee, any important policymaker, somebody's putting a book together. How do we work on making sure we're in the book, yep. that we're in front of them? Maybe the spouses could get involved as well. You know, you it know, does make the, a big get difference. Get the husband or wife there, to... there you go. You can run um, with that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's open it up to Q&A. Um, when asking questions, we've got two roving mics. Uh, please wait for the microphone to be given to you before um, asking a question. Uh, this gentleman just right here. Hi, Mark. Um, uh, Gene Epstein, uh, I'm proud to say I published three of your book reviews in Barron's when I used to be there. You used to be in Washington, D.C. 
And uh, I, of course, was heartened to hear about your appointment. You, Ironically, my son-in-law worked for you. Uh, but uh, I got to get you the question. Uh, <laughs> what, 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 Mark, I, I, I look at what's happening in Washington now, so the inevitable question is, did you leave any long-lasting, or did anybody leave any long-lasting effect on Washington's policies uh, that you can point to? I hope you can point to something. Thanks. You know, I, I think we can, and uh, while uh, I hope that, for instance, we don't see corporate tax rates go up much beyond 21, I think it's fair to say we're not going back to corporate tax rates in the 30s. So, so to some extent, I think some of the tax reform uh, will stay. Um, I'm probably going to have to be very careful here in a New York audience if I talk about the SALT issues. But uh, we're not going back to unlimited deduction for state and local taxes. That's not what's on the table even among the Democrats. Uh, and I'll say for myself, as somebody who testified on this issue back in 2013, it, it was never, even from President Trump's perspective, and certainly not my, my perspective, a blue or red state issue. It's the fact that much of what state and local government provides can be provided by the private sector. And what we've essentially done with the state and local tax deduction is we've biased the provision of local public services toward government and away from the private sector. Uh, and I think that was an important aspect. So again, some version of that's going to stick. Um, you know, the doubling of the, of, the, of the standard deduction, I think, will stick, which again reduces a lot of distortions in the tax code. Um, you know, I built a lot of capital at Fannie and Freddie that will at least be a cushion there. So I do think some of the things that there will stick. So I, I am optimistic, obviously not everything. Another question? Oh, we have uh, two. Uh, this gentleman at the back. Hi, good afternoon. I'm Aaron Cadell with Global Council in Washington, D.C. Uh, we met a few times uh, in Washington. Mark, it's good to see you again. I wondered if you could reflect on your time just having left FHFA on, I guess I'll call it the aggregate level of risk in the, in the mortgage market post the, the actions that you took, which uh, didn't go as far as you might have liked or some, some conservatives would say there should be full privatization of, of Fannie and Freddie, which obviously has, has not occurred. You lived through the financial crisis, and you, you saw market conditions in 2004, 2005. How would you say uh, that compares to now, where there are many places where housing prices are up double digits and so forth, and there's aggressive underwriting centers? How does this compare to that, and thus how does it? How do you think it, it plays out from here in terms of systemic risk? Thanks. So there's certainly some similarities and some differences, but you know maybe answer the question before you get into detail. Uh, I am very concerned about the state of the mortgage market today and our mortgage finance system. Uh, foremost, the concern is unlike, say, 2008, there is essentially almost no private capital there. You've got Fannie and Freddie with a very thin, I believe they're leveraged today, about 160 to 1. Um, FHA, so you often kind of hear this um, narrative that the subprime mortgage market went away. That's not the case. It went to FHA. So at least in the past, subprime lenders had some of their own capital. None of that. It's all the taxpayer directly, FHA. Um, so I would say the taxpayer's never been more exposed to the mortgage market than today. And yes, I helped build a lot of capital. Uh, I'm also proud to say that you know, we, at the same time, the two and a half years of FHA, we reduced, cut in half the tail risk, which was the really high risky loans. Oddly enough, or rather I should, I'd say we also take a point of this, in the two and a half years in which I was reducing the tail risk, you saw the largest annualized increase in African-American homeownership in American history during those two and a half years. And that really counters that narrative that somehow we can't have homeownership in this country unless we get rid of prudent underwriting standards. We just disproved it. 
Um, and again, you know, I think that you can do that in the right way. Certainly some of the worst products that were around pre-2008 are gone. But I think if you really do look at the, the, the high LTV lending, you look at the price appreciation we've seen, uh, it certainly disconcerns me a little bit. So, um, and again, uh, one of the things that also concerns me, there seems to be, seems to be no, no interest in really kind of pushing back on this. Uh, I attended uh, two FSOC meetings with uh, current Chair Yellen, who, um, uh, and I can tell you, and I raised issues about the mortgage market, and, and almost all that uh, Treasury wanted to talk about was, you know, how we're going to have a financial system trans zero to net zero carbon. There was essentially actual zero interest in financial stability on the Financial right. Stability Oversight Council. Um, uh, sorry, uh, I think this gentleman was first. This. Sorry, Josh, the, uh, the gentleman, oh, yep, that's fine. Um, <clears throat> Mark, um, it was pretty clear that a lot of the good policies you put in place when you were there seem to have been reversed. Um, I'm not, I read some of the details, I don't have a big overall picture, but every single item I look at seems to be horrible. I think of what happened in Virginia, and somehow people, started understanding what was, what was going on um, and totally changed overnight uh, the public perception of how bad education was. Is it possible to somehow grab on something that will grab people and possibly save the system? Uh, let me say, I think we absolutely need to, and this was certainly one of the things that, that I always struggled with when I was at Cato previously, which is, you know, you had a year and a half of uh, parents being home watching on Zoom what their children were being taught um, and frustrated and not being to go back. And so I think it's a, a really important question for Cato, whether it's financial services or whether it's trade, how do you make that real for people? Um, you know, and again, this is not to say we don't ever continue to do our really important work, but you know, as I kind of put it, for the public and for policymakers, nobody cares what your R-square is on your regression. That, you know, not to say you shouldn't do it, but you need to be able to come up with stories and, and anecdotes. This is one reason like, why my you know, maybe second or third favorite organization after Cato has always been Institute for Justice, because they're just terrific at picking the right cases that resonate. Uh, and I think that's part of what we need to, we do that and we need to continue to do that and find ways that illustrate, you know, and one of the things I did pretty regularly at FHFA to really impress upon, um, you know, the, the staff, how important their work was in getting it right, uh, and I say this in personal experience, so I was on the banking committee in 2008, uh, and I'm very proud of the fact that uh, the food service workers in the Senate cafeteria figured out where my office was and they brought their mortgage documents to me and said, I'm confused. How did I get in this situation? And I would find people, you know, who wash dishes for a living, who have three homes, four homes, and you were like, how did people get talked into this? Uh, and the way I take this back to FHFA is I would, you know, I would always greet new staff, we always did new staff orientations, and I would sit there and tell them, you know, I've sat across the table from people who've lost their homes and went through foreclosure because we had a bad system with bad incentives that largely the government drove. Uh, and I can tell you, Fannie and Freddie don't care if they blow the system up and that the staff there don't care and don't take responsibility for it, bad things are going to happen. So somewhat reminding uh, people that, you know, somebody's got to be, the buck stops somewhere. And I reminded the FHFA staff pretty regularly, the buck stopped with them. 
but it helped to personalize to them because most of them would think about it and they would know one or two people that they perhaps knew went through foreclosure. Uh, and again, it's, it's just a good reminder. I mean, to me, you know, one of the, A, the most heartbreaking thing to me in this is um, I believe 2019 was probably the best labor market of my entire lifetime. And to see the policies that were put in place in terms of deregulation, tax reform that helped create that market, where we were seeing record low rates of unemployment for African Americans, record low rates of unemployment across the board, and to see that reversed and lost, mm -hmm. to me, is a bit heartbreaking. But it's also a bit heartbreaking to have gone through the financial crisis and seen the devastation and, of course, the expansion of government. I would tell my healthcare colleagues at Cato all the time, we got Obamacare because of the financial crisis. It created the environment where something like Obamacare was possible. Uh, and just to remind people that we don't ever want to go through that again. And I do worry that those lessons have been completely lost in Washington. So we need to personalize them. I, I actually have a story, if I may. Um, you know, one of my proudest moments, I think the Amtrak bathrooms are an underappreciated, creative way of getting to policymakers because I was on the Acela uh, a couple of weeks ago um, and I was in the quiet car and there was a gentleman standing in the, um, there, I, I'm going somewhere with this, in the bathroom doorway talking very loudly on his phone. And I got up, because yes, I am that person. And I went up and I said, excuse me, sir, you're in the quiet car. And he turned around, it was Bernie Sanders. And nice. he sat down, he, t he ended his call, and he sat down. Now, had I known I had that much influence with him, I also would have said, keep your hands off of my money as well while you're there. You know, but I mean, maybe I'll just... You've got to take these opportunities when they present, and if it's the Acela bathroom, I'm going to do it. You're welcome. Um, I think we have to end... Sorry for taking the time there. I thought you'd appreciate that story of Cato's tangible impact. Um, we're going to break for lunch. Uh, please enjoy your lunch. We're going to resume the program um, at 1.05 with Johan Norberg. Meanwhile, please welcome... Uh, excuse me. Please thank Mark Calabria. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.